News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. We tend to think of medications as chemical, right, and synthetic, things we create in a lab, but that's not where it all came from. In fact, one of the most significant medicinal discoveries of all time, something you may take every day, was actually inspired by a compound found in nature. But you know, the story of aspirin is a lot more complicated than that. Dr. Joe Schwartz is a director of McGill University's Office for Science and Society and joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me. Is that a common belief, though, that aspirin came from the bark of a tree? Well, it certainly is a common belief among scientists. It's probably not a common belief in the general public who don't really think about such things. They don't think about the origin of substances. But, uh, you know, in the scientific world, it's always interesting to look at the history of the substances that, that we use. And the history of aspirin goes back to basically ancient Egypt. The uh, Ebers Papyrus, which is the oldest known medical document, actually recommends the use of uh, willow tree extract or the bark of the willow tree uh, to treat inflammation in uh, cuts and wounds. Uh, Today we know that the willow tree bark contains a substance called salicin, and in the body this is converted to salicylic acid, which has an anti-inflammatory effect. So those ancient Egyptians uh, actually got that one right. So did Hippocrates, the most famous of the ancient Greek physicians. He also recommended the use of willow bark extract to to treat pains and and aches. Now, there was a a problem with willow bark extract, uh, and that is that it also causes bleeding in the stomach. And uh, this is the problem that was solved by uh, aspirin to a large extent. Now, aspirin does not come from the bark of the willow tree. That is a common misconception. The bark of the willow tree contains salicin, which is a compound that in the body gives rise to salicylic acid. But aspirin is not salicylic acid. It is acetosalicylic acid, which is quite a different substance. And uh, this came about in the late 1800s. And uh, it was because of research done at the Bayer company in in Germany. And at the time, the company was investigating uh, the use of chemistry in making novel novel drugs. (laughs) And Felix Hoffman, one of the workers at that company, had a father who had been taking willow bark extract for arthritis. And he had a side effect. And the side effect was that he constantly got an upset stomach when he took this willow bark extract. And so Hoffman decided to give uh, this a shot to see whether or not he could improve upon this extract. Well, about 50 years before, another German chemist by the name of uh, Gerhardt had isolated salicylic acid from the bark of the willow tree. And uh, Hoffman thought that maybe if he chemically manipulated the salicylic acid, he might retain its painkilling effects and eliminate the uh, ability to cause a stomach upset. And he carried out a chemical reaction, pretty simple one, where he essentially heated up uh, salicylic acid, which was extracted from the tree, with vinegar, which is acetic acid. 
and he came up with a new substance, and this was acetyl salicylic acid, commonly abbreviated as ASA, and trade named aspirin by the Bayer Company. <clears throat> A from the Latin for from, and spirin, which is the Latin name of the of the willow. So aspirin really does have uh, a connection to the willow tree, but it is not found in the willow tree. It can be synthesized from a substance that is found there. So uh, by the late uh, 1890s, aspirin was uh, commercially marketed by the buyer company. Interestingly enough, it was very often advertised together with heroin, which was also synthesized right. at that time by Hoffman. And uh, that was recommended for the treatment of coughs. And, of course, it soon became apparent that while it did uh, reduce the severity of a cough, it also caused addiction. So, obviously, that was eliminated. But aspirin has been with us uh, ever since. It is the most widely used drug in the world because it is indeed effective for uh, inflammation, for, for pain, and also it has an effect on blood clotting. It reduces the chance of blood clot formation. And uh, that has uh, uh, implications because heart attacks and strokes can be caused by the formation of blood clot in the body. Right. Dr. So, Schwartz, I have so, to ask you, is, yeah. is that common then? Like some of these medications that we take for granted today, are they lab created or are they inspired in nature somewhere? <clears throat> it's a mixture. Uh, many of the medications that we use today are inspired by nature. For example, uh, a drug that is very commonly used to, to treat congestive uh, heart disease, which is digitalis, uh, the uh, uh, precursor of that drug is found in the foxglove plant. And in the 1700s, it became apparent that people who were using this herbal remedy, uh, foxglove, uh, had a benefit if they also suffered from heart disease. So that uh, was studied, and eventually a compound called digoxin was extracted from uh, foxglove. And uh, digoxin is used today for the treatment of congestive heart disease. But something that is very important to point out is that when someone suffers from congestive heart disease, you you don't tell them to go out and graze in a uh, you know, grove of foxglove. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, so the uh, compound is extracted and it is purified so that physicians know exactly uh, what uh, dose to give to a patient. So, yes, digoxin was uh, inspired by the foxglove, but it is not <clears throat> the foxglove per se that is used as a medicine. Right. Do, are so, that, is that work still going on then, Dr. Schwartz? Or do we still, does the scientific and research community still look to nature perhaps to provide some more medicine? Every pharmaceutical company has uh, an arm that searches for such uh, substances because nature, of course, produces thousands and thousands of compounds. I mean, if you just think of, of uh, you know, you sniff a cup of coffee, you're actually sniffing, believe it or not, over a thousand different compounds in that coffee. Uh, so nature is replete with all kinds of chemicals. And yes, some of these can have therapeutic benefits. So pharmaceutical companies absolutely search for this. And sometimes, of course, you, you find a, a gem. For example, Taxol which is a, a drug that is used very commonly in the treatment of breast cancer, is uh, uh, refined from
from an extract of the bark of the yew tree. And uh, it is one of the most commonly used drugs in, uh, in the treatment of breast cancer. So there's no question that there's great potential in, in nature. But again, uh, the substances are isolated, they're purified, standardized, so that you know exactly how much to give to, to a patient. Right. But certainly uh, there is uh, uh, a great need to search for novel drugs, uh, which may have some sort of precursor in natural substances. Amazing. Dr. Schwartz, thank you so much for your time and for, and for teaching us all about that today. Well, thanks very much. That was fascinating. Dr. Joe Schwartz is the director of McGill University's Office for Science and Society, teaching us a little something about the history of one of the most important drugs, aspirin, and how it was found and created. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, it's time for us to have a chat with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. And Vaughn, I'm glad we're talking about the homeowner grant right now because we have Finance Minister Katrina Conroy on later this morning. And there, I think there are a lot of questions about the homeowner grant. Oh, I think there are. She announced yesterday that the New Democrats are leaving, basically leaving it untouched. The threshold to qualify for the homeowner grant is to assessed value of your house at $2.15 million. And I know that's really not a very big house in Vancouver and Victoria, but... Uh, yeah, there have been a lot of calls over the years for this thing to be amended or phased out or at least means tested. This is an election year. The New Democrats have left it unchanged. And so we go on for another year with a grant that, uh, Simi, uh, it's almost as old as I am. <laughs> it was created by W.A.C. Bennett in the 1950s. And successive governments have decided, nah, we're not going to mess with that. People like it, and we're going to leave it alone. That's the thing, right? Like, I can't imagine any any politician being able to say, we're going to eliminate this. No, I think eliminating it is probably not in the cards. Uh, but I think, you know, over time, I, I'm surprised they haven't switched to means testing. After all, the New Democrats brought in a renter's grant of $400 really in response to the criticism that homeowners were getting $570 by way of a grant and what about renters? So they brought in the $400 uh, promise. It took them a while to do it, but they finally did it. But it is means tested. It isn't available to everybody. Uh, you've, Simi, there have been two NDP-appointed commissions both headed by former NDP finance ministers, and both said the homeowner grant is not fair, not progressive tax policy, not a good thing to have, uh, and you ought to uh, phase it out uh, and or means test it. In both cases, the government just rejected those recommendations. Uh, I noticed yesterday in the press release that Conroy said what uh, previous NDP finance ministers have said, which is it's all very well to talk about phasing out the grant based on assessed value of homes, but that's a situation that varies widely across the province. She, for example, referred to the fact that about a half a million 
BC seniors get the grant, they may be house rich. They may well have a house worth more, you know, up to $2 million, which qualifies them for the grant, uh, but they don't have a lot of income. So it would actually be tougher to design a phase out or a means testing than it sounds. And I think there's that's one of the reasons the government stayed away from it. I think the other reason the government stayed away from it is, come on, it's an election year. You're not going to take away what uh, many people regard, well, generations of British Columbians have regarded as an entitlement. This thing was created in 1957. Yeah, it's been around for a long time. Now, what has the Premier has said about this in the past? Uh, the Premier is interesting. He got into this as housing minister, and he was urged by Generation Squeeze to jack up taxes on wealthy, expensive, expensive, highly assessed West Side properties. Uh, he was urged to phase out the homeowner grant. And his comment at the time was, um, no housing tax ever put a roof over anybody's head. He said that he wasn't looking at targeting those kind of taxes to do it. Now, you know, one, I guess one would have to say that comes with an asterisk because David Eby is promising one tax, which we're going to hear about this year, presumably with the budget that uh, Conroy will be tabling in February, and that will be a flipping tax. Uh, the EB government promised a tax on real estate flipping last year. We haven't seen it yet. Uh, we're not 100% sure how it will work, but if you look at the federal tax that was brought in last year, essentially what a flipping tax does is it it says that the if a piece of property changes hands within a given time frame, federal it's one year, it's been suggested two years here in BC, the increase in the assessed well the increase in the price is made taxable. So it, the tax is designed to discourage people from buying a place and then turning around and selling it as soon as its value appreciates. That's the theory. As I said, the New Democrats have said very little about their intention, but presumably that's what they're thinking of for legislation this year. I expect the finance minister will tell you that she never discusses taxes until budget day, so she's probably not going to say very much about it. But the one thing that the premier said near the end of the year was they still plan to bring in a flipping tax. So I guess we'll see something in February. Yeah. And I want to remind the listener that you don't just get the homeowner grant automatically. You have to apply yes. for it and you apply to the provincial government now. That's been a big change in the last few years. You used to do it through your local property tax statement. You now have to go on the finance minister's website and apply for it there. Uh, when the province did that a few years ago, there was a suspicion that they were doing it to gather the data necessary to redesign the tax and the entitlement and phase it out. I don't know if that's the case, but uh, there you go. And if you're a senior, disabled, if you live outside the Bain metropolitan regions, you're entitled to a larger grant, but again, you have to apply. So everybody just remember, uh, you don't get it automatically. You have to fill out an application to the provincial government and get the money, which isn't actually money. It's simply a deduction on your property taxes. That's how you get it. Uh, the Belfry Theatre. So there's a lovely little theatre company here in the capital region. I've gone to their plays over the years, uh, admire their work. It's not easy to stage a small theatre company in a relatively small community like Victoria. 
And Simi, a year ago, they announced they were going to put on a production this spring of a play written by a Canadian. It's a one-person play. It's called The Runner. It is set in Israel. It's been staged elsewhere in Canada, and it's been broadcast on the CBC. Uh, It's a controversial production all of a sudden. It got embroiled in the controversy over the war that's going on in the Middle East. Pro-Palestinian protesters called a meeting with the theater, demanded it be canceled, uh, went with a petition. The theater was defaced. A counter-petition went up. Uh, That one urged the theater company to stick with the play and put it on. And anyway, yesterday, the theater company just threw in the towel to the protesters. They said uh, to stage the runner at this time would divide the community. They're not interested in doing that. I would say they also chickened out because they expect the production to be disrupted by the pro-Palestinian protesters. And that's sad, right? The way you described it to us last time, too, is that this is, it's happened before, like it's been staged before without problem and it was. I felt like it was an important message for this time. Yeah, when the, you know, the, the thing, the people that, look, I haven't seen it. It's hard to find the text online because it is controversial now. It wasn't before. For a time, you could find the CBC's broadcast on the CBC website, but I don't think it's there anymore. But look, here's, so I haven't seen it, but as I understand it, it's a one-person play. It is, the setup is a volunteer healthcare worker in Israel chooses to treat a Palestinian woman rather than an Israeli soldier because he feels guided by um, triage, by the need to treat the person who needs it treatment first. Uh, It it doesn't sound to me like a, a play that is unsympathetic to Palestinians, at least to the woman who gets treated. And it creates a moral dilemma because there's a backlash against the healthcare worker for putting the Palestinian woman who's suspected of involvement in terrorism ahead of an Israeli soldier. So that's the story. Uh, when you hear it described that way, you go, what's the controversy? So the controversy, as I understand it, from the people who put out the petition saying cancel it is twofold. One, the suspicion that the playwright, Christopher Moore, Canadian, uh, was somehow or other enlisted or bankrolled or backed by the Israelis in writing this play. And the other is that the play, this sounds like somebody who had in mind, when you hear this complaint, this bit sounds like someone who had in mind a different play. The play is that, well, it portrays the Israelis, but it doesn't portray the Palestinians. Well, it's a one-person play. It's yeah. only going to, you know. But look, um, there were 2,100 signatures on the petition that said keep the play. There were, I think, 1,500 on the petition that said get rid of it. But, you know, I think, as I said, it's a small theater company. Uh, they probably described, decided, as they say, that discretion is a better part of valor. The production probably would have been disrupted. The theater's already been vandalized. Yeah. And they said in their statement, this is not the time to do it. It would divide the community further. Uh, that's probably true, but it's also disturbing to see that, 
you know, you can essentially cancel a play if you don't like the content. Well, that's so sad because, you know, theaters like that as well, a lot of them are volunteers, right? Yeah, they, they don't no, sign up to be targeted and harassed and have these have themselves no. put in these scary situations. No, and you remember that the Victoria City Council and the Victoria Mayor was very slow to respond to a member of council that had uh, made a statement uh, sympathetic to the Palestinian cause and uh, dismissive of the victims of the October the 7th massacre. And she later initially refused to apologize and later did apologize. So, I mean, these are these are difficult times. I think the theater is right that the theater company is right that if they put it on, it would have added to the divisions in the community. And so you say, okay, well, uh, you know, you, you, that's your reason for not going ahead. It's too bad, but this is the times in which we live. Certainly seems that way. Uh, Vaughn, thank you for that. Bye-bye, Simi. That is Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. This is Mornings with Simi. If you're like me, when you have to take a flight somewhere these days, you are amazed, absolutely shocked if your flight leaves and arrives on time. How did we get to this point? And we're not alone in this problem. In fact, in Canada, we are really kind of beaten down on this issue. A measurement of on-time performance for North American airlines shows that Canada's two largest leave a lot to be desired. Air Canada's on-time performance in 2023, 63% of the time, puts them last among the 10 largest airlines in North America. WestJet came in seventh, being on time 69% of the time. Compare that to an airline like Delta Airlines, came in first, on time 85% of the time. So what is going on here in Canada? Well, John Graddick is an aviation management professor at McGill University, who will hopefully help us answer that question. John, thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure, Simi. Why are Canadian Airlines so bad, it seems like, at being on time? It's not a priority. Um, it's pure and simple that, you know, the, the executives at um, Air Canada, as an example, have said that, you know, whatever with the uh, on-time performance around 70% is acceptable. Um, and that uh, that's the way it's going to have to be in order for Air Canada to, in fact, make some money and to be person return to their shareholders uh, and to be able to sustain the, the growth that they've had for the last 18 to 24 months. So, you know, it, it is a very specific strategy on the part of the airline, uh, of Air Canada specifically, not to basically aim to have on-time performance a la Delta Airlines at 85% or Alaska at 83%. It, you know, Air Canada is not... Uh, orienting itself to get to that level of on-time performance. Okay, so what do they think is the trade-off here? Why do they think that we are willing to accept it? Um, let's just say uh, we, we, we somehow have a an agreement among the carriers that on-time performance is not really a key measure of competitive behavior in this country. Um, you know, we're all, they're all in the same boat, you know, at WestJet at, you know, 73% and Air Canada at, at 65%. You know, those are, those are not numbers that you want to have, uh, on your, on your, on your epitaph as being, you know, this is how great an airline we ran at 68% or 63% on time performance. That's not what we want. Uh, we, Air Canada prided itself in the past of being an, op, you know, an on-time performance airline in the low to mid 80s. 
Uh, and uh, right now, that's it seems to take taking a rung down the ladder to say, well, okay, well, seven percent is not so bad. We'll take it. Is it because they can, John? Because we'll still buy tickets because, in so many cases, that's the only choice. Yeah, and I think that's probably you know a, a good way to summarize. And I think you know Canadians have become uh, conditioned to to late flights, uh, and you know we we don't make our buying decisions on airfares based on on-time performance. We basically say, well, we want prices and we want to make sure that we can get from point A to point B. That doesn't necessarily say we want to be there on time. <laughs> so they've so, worn us down is what you're saying. They've absolutely yeah, beaten us down. I think so. I think, I think you know, we've, we've had this situation go on for, for a couple of years now. Uh, the pandemic, of course, is, 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 is a natural that that would normally happen with the lack of staff and, and service levels. But since, you know, since revenge travel has taken taken hold in Canada, uh, you know, flights flight are full and people want to go and people say, well, to me, what's more important is a flight and a seat and a price uh, that is maybe somewhat more expensive. But at least I know I'm going to get from point A to point B. Whatever time I operate, so be it. I'll plan my schedule and I'll I plan my activities accordingly right. and to accept the fact that I'm going to be late. So don't plan anything on a cruise ship <laughs> two hours after your scheduled arrival. Not why, happen. why is it so hard for airlines like Canada, Air Canada, uh, and WestJet to some extent as well to just be on time? What are the challenges here? Oh, I think there, there's a number of challenges, and, and, and the key the key challenge really is resources, you know, as people, um, and, and to a lesser degree, airplanes. You know, as an example, I'll give you, you know, Air Canada in, in uh, 2019, uh, or the, the start of the pandemic in 2020. Uh, you know, dropped 22 airplanes from its fleet. 22 wide-body 767 airplanes were basically taken off the fleet. Um, and they're trying to say today, well, we're flying 90% of what we flew in 2019, we're flying today. Well, to me, that tells me that they're flying these wide-body, the remaining wide-body airplanes much harder, um, longer hours, longer stage lengths, uh, and they're not getting the tender loving care that these older airplanes, and they are old, these triple sevens and these three uh, thirties, they are older airplanes, and they're not being given the amount of tender loving care and maintenance that they should be getting in order for them to have a high degree of operational integrity. So that's what we're seeing. We're seeing Air right. Canada push its fleet pretty hard, and uh, airplanes are breaking down. But there doesn't seem to be any incentive for them to change either, does it, from what you say there? Because we're still going to buy tickets. They know they can just put on a seat sale, give us some good deals, and people will still buy tickets. That's, and that's exactly what's happening today. If you look at the seat sales that are going on today, I think you, we would say that Flair and Lynx, um, you know, until about you know December, were the price leaders uh, in Canada and WestJet and Air Canada were kind of giving them some leeway. They, they weren't you know aggressively meeting or matching their prices. Uh, as of January, uh, nobody's got any uh, seat sales that last, as it was a competitive advantage, last more than about 15 or 20 seconds. The carriers are matching everything that's out there. So Canadian consumers are getting a heck of a deal, good pricing, but don't, don't expect to be on time. It's almost like they've decided they don't need to be loved, John, right? That they're, that the brand, that the kind of brand loyalty that so many other corporations and companies worry about, they've just, they're not going to worry about that. No, no, you know, I think that they're, they're, you know, they've taken customer service and they made it a backseat type of issue. Uh, you know, to, to them, you know, it really is a, you know, they've commoditized air transportation. It's like taking a bus. It's like taking a cab. It's like taking an Uber. 
there's really you know you're really not doing anything to kind of create some type of differentiated product in the marketplace that has people talking about it. Right. Um, you don't you know, have to. Same, 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 yeah, same old, same old, same old. So I think that, you know, the question you have to ask yourself, you know, is, is there room for somebody somehow, some way to kind of, you know, put an incentive into the mindsets of the airlines to get them to act a little differently, to get them to be able to, you know, perform more on time or a higher level of service. You don't have to wait three or four hours on a call center uh, call up to get talking to a human being. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I've been talking about is that, you know, right now we have the APPRs, the Air Passenger Protection Rights, that basically have three-hour limits. You know, you, you start to get paid yeah. compensation if you have a three-hour, if you're delayed more than three hours. I'd like to see that change. I'd like to see that, that change to one hour. And, and then that should change the behavior of the airlines. Because three hours and compensation being paid after three hours is not a, is not a big deal. And, and, they're, and they're not, and they're going to refuse you anyway because you have to go to the CPA yeah. and stand in line in front of sixty-five thousand other people. But you know, you, you you basically make it one hour, and you enforce it, and you put fines in place that are significant. In the U.S., when Southwest melted down last year yeah. uh, on their schedule on Christmas time, do you know what the fine was that they had to pay the, the DOT? I saw that it was huge. A hundred and a hundred and forty million dollars, a fine that they had to pay the U.S. government for a scheduled meltdown. And, yeah, it took, it took, it took them about a week to figure it all out, but that, that, you know, that compares pretty closely to what's happened to Sunwing. But, you know, in Canada, what, 25000 bucks yeah, max nothing. point if you're going to get, if you're lucky. So it's, exactly. it, it's, there's, a ways to, there's a ways to go yet. Oh, there is. John, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Have a great day. Take you care. You too. John Graddick is an aviation management professor at McGill University. Well, that's it, right? The airlines have no incentive here in Canada to be on time. They know they can put up a seat sale. We'll still buy the seats, and we don't have any other choices. Not a lot of options for us. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. What is ahead for BC financially in 2024? What can we expect? And we're going to talk more about the homeowners grant as well. Joining us now for more on all of that is Katrina Conroy, BC's Minister of Finance. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, good morning, Simi. Good to be here. So let's start off by talking about that homeowners grant. So you're leaving this unchanged. Basically, yes. It, it, it's changed very little across the province. It's like a minus uh, five plus 5%, it's changed to around minus 10, minus 5, 10% in the interior more so. But yeah, it's a, it's a minor, minor change. And it's, it's a good thing because it's going to continue to provide some tax relief for home, eligible homeowners. Yeah. How many homeowners are eligible in BC? Who does this cover? Covers about ninety-two percent of, of homeowners, and it's for people. There's a grant threshold of two point fifteen million um, who meet the, so people who meet that uh, that uh, qualification uh, can claim the grant against their property tax. Why do we have it? What is the homeowners grant? It's it's historical. It was brought in to help people out to uh, support them with their with their taxes on their on their homeowner on on their home, and and it's been around for a bit, and it's. It's something that helps people, supports people, so it's something that we're going to continue to do. Do, do we think it still is very helpful for people, or have we just gotten used to having it? I mean, it's $400 on property taxes that are thousands and thousands of dollars. Well, it's... <laughs> 
that, that's that's debatable. Um, we we feel that it is still very helpful for people. Like we've been looking at it. You know, is is it a something that's that's helpful? I mean, we've uh, we've been known to say that it's uh, it, it's not the best tax, but right now it's it's a it's a tax that uh, does provide relief for eligible owners and that actually it, it helps about half a million seniors who have seen costs rise but their incomes have stayed the same and and it's it um it, it does still remain helpful it, it also ensures homeowners with with big needs like the greatest needs receive the most support so there's extra support for seniors for veterans for um or people with a disability so you know we want to make sure that people continue to get that support like last year alone there was over 15,000 people with a disability that uh, uh, got the the additional support. Now, I know there's been a lot of discussion this year about making it more equitable somehow. Are, are those things that the Ministry of Finance looks at? Well, we look at that, but this year, you know, we're keeping the the status quo because we, you know, we we're, uh, want to continue to provide support for people that need it. So we we are gonna it's gonna stay as as it has been for a while. Okay, and let me ask you as well, are there any other measures coming? I know there's been some talk about a flipping tax, something we might see in 2024. Like, are there other things that the ministry is looking at right now to help out uh, the housing situation? Well, there's definitely a lot going on with the, with the housing semi. Some of that will be announced more in the budget, but some of it, like we're already doing, and and we're going to continue to provide those supports for people to make sure that uh, they get that. I mean, high interest rates and, and prices that, that continues to be hard on families, and so we're trying to make sure people have a bit more money to help pay with those bills. And we're going to continue doing the affordability measures we've been doing for for well, some started last year, some the years before. You know, I think that one of the best ones that we've done. Simi, that people seem to just have written it off as though it's already been done, it's over, but it's not, is, is the, the lowering of childcare fees for the people that are accessing those lower childcare fees. It's made a substantial difference in their lives. And it's, it's made, like last year, over 75% of the people that returned to the workforce were women. And it's, it's directly attributed to lower childcare fees. So that, that's something that's helped considerably. And then we're going to keep doing other things, like we've increased the, the uh, permanently increased the BC Family uh, Benefit. And doubling the climate action tax credit has also helped people considerably that, that need that support across the province and along with that, a number of other initiatives that we've done. Uh, I know housing is a huge issue as well for the government and for people in BC. I see that the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver's numbers just out this morning show that uh, home sales went down 10% uh, year over year in 2023. Does that is that a concern at all for BC's finances? Because I know that makes up a, a good part of, of you know revenue that is generated. Yeah, it's a concern, but at the same time, it's also good for people who are trying to get into the housing market, which is, I think, more of a concern in some ways. I mean, we want to make sure people get those you know, forever homes that they're hoping to have and that it's not outrageously expensive, that it's uh, affordable. And that's one of the things we're working on is affordable housing and, and trying to make sure that it's uh, available to people. And, and if there's going to be more to announce on that, we're working in collaboration with the federal government and municipal governments that, to make sure that it's everybody's responsibility that uh, we can help people to get that affordable housing that they desperately need. And what are we looking at for BC in terms of economic growth in 2024? What are the projections for that? Well, there's a range of, of forecasting projections. I mean, um, more of 
forecast from the Economic Forecast Council and, and our own uh, projections have come across, and, and it all shows slower economic growth in the near term, which it's, it doesn't mean a recession. I want to make sure people have that clear. It doesn't necessarily mean that, but um, it does mean that we'll see a, a slowdown in some areas, and and it's uh, something that we need to keep in mind when we're developing the budget, but also making sure that we're going to support people. But there are some areas of strength that we can look forward to, and actually including no, new home construction, which is significant in the province, and employment, which is also very, it's good in the province, um, supported by our population growth, which has been substantial, and more people entering the workforce. All right. Well, we'll see what happens. Uh, thank you so much for joining yeah. us. Okay. Thank you, Cindy. Appreciate that. That's Katrina Conroy, BC's Minister of Finance, talking about BC's financial picture. We wait to see what other housing measures will be heading our way in the next few months. We'll have to wait for the budget for that uh, coming in February. This is Mornings with Simi. Does it violate the Charter of Rights and Freedoms if you tell someone they can't do drugs in a public area? Is it really as simple as question as that? I know this has been a hot debate this past year in BC, more so even since the BC Supreme Court ruled last Friday that it could potentially cause, quote, irreparable harm if drug users were banned from public areas like parks. But what about that constitutional argument here? Is this something that our next guest has been writing about? Actually, Tristan Hopper is with us now, reporter for the National Post. Thank you so much for being here. No, thanks for having me. Okay, so how do you view this decision by the BC Supreme Court? What is the court saying here? Uh, so the court is essentially saying a lot of these sort of out there decisions are always based on Section 7 of the Constitution. That's security of the person. Um, so I think that was our main decision when the, the Supreme Court decided, oh, you, you know, you have to be able to give an aid to you know, the mentally ill and all these other categories. So it's usually a Section 7 decision. Whenever, you know, the, the lay person hears something like the court said that, that's usually Section 7 of the Constitution. So basically what was decided in this case is uh, the Chief Justice of the B.C. Supreme Court um, was presented with uh, this new BC law, which is, I'm, I'm going to go out there and say this is a, one of the more soft-handed laws when it comes to sort of drug disorder. I mean, this is David Eby used to be, his job 10 years ago was one of the street-level activists who used to sue laws like this. So he, he very much designed a law that was going to be as <clears throat> inoffensive as possible, and it still got struck down as unconstitutional. So basically what it's based on is the BC law, said, if you're doing drugs, uh, illicit drugs, um, within 15 meters of a playground, a splash park, a skate park, or school, um, a police officer is allowed to go over and say, hey, can you stop doing the drug or move over there? And if they refuse or swear at the cop, then the cop can arrest them. But they, they still don't face charges, um, drug charges under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. So this is a, a very slight dialing back of decriminalization. It's still decriminalized, but... A cop can politely ask you to leave if you're near a playground. So what the uh, B.C. Supreme Court Chief Justice said, well, what, what could happen? This was a case brought by the Harm Reduction Nurses Association. As they said, well, if people are sort of being dissing, you know, told not to do drugs in a playground or any public area of any kind, um, they could be incentivized to do it alone. And people usually die of overdoses when they do drugs alone. So he said, oh, OK, based on that. Uh, this is irreparable harm, and it's a violation of uh, Section 7, security of the person. So this Chief Justice, he knew, uh, he acknowledged that, oh, yeah, this is terrible for parks. Uh, I mean, there's old women, there's children who can't go to parks because of all the drug disorder around them. But he said, uh, that's, uh, that's an okay cost, uh, considering 
the Harvard Action Nurses Association told me that some extra people might be killed by overdoses. Right. What about the argument on the other, the public safety aspect of the the right to say children to play in the park without, you know, coming across perhaps something that might hurt them? Uh, so this did come up. So the, the chief justice sort of acknowledges it and says, uh, yeah, this is if there's biohazardous materials. Um, I mean, he cites uh, testimony uh, from, from police, from community groups, uh, saying that, yeah, we, we can't use the parks, uh, you know, in low-income areas where parks are particularly important. There are no-go zones. So he basically just decided, uh, that's important, but it's not as important as this. So he, he very explicitly said, the rights of children not to get poked by needles are superseded by uh, the rights of addicts to do drugs uh, in these child-centric areas. And it only applies to the child-centric areas. So, you know, under decriminalization, you could still uh, smoke crack basically anywhere. This this was only regarding uh, the new BC law, which was uh, skate parks, playgrounds, um, daycare centers, anywhere where kids were going to be. Right. Is this not superseded, though, by the, the federal laws regarding this, the exemption that BC got? Uh, that's where it gets weird because, yeah, it's, a, it's the Federal Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So, I mean, you could look at it and say, well, if it's unconstitutional to, for you know, ask people not to do drugs in playgrounds, BC is the only place that has decriminalization. So every other part of Canada, if you do drugs in a playground, not only are you arrested, but you face drug charges. So, yeah, it's, it's weird to sort of cite a federal statute um, for yeah. a, a legal regime that we've had for like 10 minutes here. Uh, because, yeah, just across the border in Alberta, uh, you, you smoke crack on a playground slide. Uh, yeah, not only will you be arrested, you could go to jail. Okay, so Tristan, where do you think this leaves BC? Uh, uh, it all depends. I mean, you had the, uh, I'm forgetting his name, but the leader of the BC Conservative Party saying he would invoke the notwithstanding clause. So that is an option uh, for David Eby. David Eby has been, uh, I mean, when he brought into criminalization and municipalities were saying, well, we're worried about the drug store, he took their, their concerns seriously. Uh, he, he met with uh, Kelowna, uh, he met with these small municipalities, and he designed this legislation to sort of allay those fears. Because what they wanted to do, Port Coquitlam, Kelowna, a lot of those places, what they wanted to do is they wanted to um, have it so that the criminalization didn't even apply in the playground. So they wanted the old regime, you can be arrested and charged for drug possession in these playgrounds. So they introduced this law, which says, eh, well, I've got this new law, where we just have police politely ask them to leave, and there's not really an enforcement mechanism, but there, there sort of is. Um, so it's up to David Eby. If he wants to make an issue of this, yeah, BC uses the notwithstanding clause for the first time ever and just says, oh, screw you. Uh, that's notwithstanding clause is the part where you don't have to listen to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And it was put in there back when, they, back when the Constitution was signed in 1981, um, people thought, well, what if some judge, like, you know, goes nuts and then decides that, you know, oh, I don't know, smoking drugs in a, a playground is a constitutionally protected charter right. Maybe we should have a mechanism where parliament or a legislature can uh, supersede that. So, yes, B.C., there is a way around this for B.C. It's also only a temporary injunction. So what I, I'm guessing the B.C. government is just going to litigate this and we'll have a three-month delay uh, on this and maybe they'll right. raise it to a higher court. But there's always uh, an escape valve. But, you know, B.C. is nice. We're not Alberta or Quebec. We don't just, you know, right. But don't you think this makes it more difficult to find the balance, the balance that I think a lot of British Columbians were hoping to find with this and that you want to help people who are in this situation, they are addicted. You don't want them to die. We're trying to find a way to balance that. And this makes it difficult to find that. Oh, yeah, that's that's why I covered it, because it's a very out there decision. I mean, when this uh, the criminalization amendments uh, referring to playgrounds was brought in. I mean, again, the government putting it together. 
is David Eby was a street-level activist. He worked for many of the same organizations uh, that are now sort of litigating these laws. Um, so he knows where they're coming from. He's seen, you know, harm reduction and drug policy close up uh, on a street level. I mean, when he put through this amendment, I'm in Victoria, he had Marianne Alto, probably the most left harm reduction mayor in the entire province, saying, oh, this is good, we need to balance, uh, you know, we, we can't have kids, you know, just being screamed well, at yeah. in the playground. And I can say as a Victorian, yeah, it's, uh, I've, I've gone with my 100-year-old grandma and kids. I, if someone's just twisted on drugs, I've, I've had people scream at my kids, uh, threaten to kill them. They don't know what they're doing. Uh, definitely found needles. So, yeah, it's, it's having real-world effects. Okay, so then do you feel like is this just a delay? BC is still kind of trying to figure out the government is what next steps they're going to take? Uh, probably because it's so dramatic to uh, put in the notwithstanding clause. But, yeah, this is a case of a government putting in uh, the most soft-handed approach to, okay, we're still going to have drug decriminalization, basically the only drug decriminalization regime in all of the Western Hemisphere, like some South American countries. Right. It, doesn't, it doesn't bode well for it, though, does it, Tristan? Because if the federal government is watching this, they're saying, listen, if we're going to run into problems with this, then we're just, forget the exemption. Uh, yes, yeah, if, I, I guess, uh, yeah, if, if you could say, well, if judges are just going to make up charter rights based on some regime that's only been in place three months, it's going to be very hard for us to manage this in any material way. So, yes, if I was sitting in another province and say, well, decriminalization could be a good idea, um, I, would, I would be hesitant to pursue it knowing that, you know, one of my judges could just decide, oh, you, you can't even restrict drug use. And it's not, it's not drug possession. I mean, that was originally what some of these municipalities were looking at drug possession, which, you know, you wouldn't be allowed to possess it. And they said, that's too difficult. So we're only going to make it if you're shooting heroin or smoking crack within view of a playground. So it's, it's very specific about what they were targeting. Right. Oh, boy, this decision. Okay, Tristan, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. That's Tristan Hopper, reporter for the National Post, talking about the kind of balancing act. It's almost like a high wire act that, that BC is undergoing right now, trying to, well, the government was trying to allay concerns of the public when it came to decriminalization and, and public drug use. And now that's all being kind of thrown for a loop by this BC Supreme Court decision. I was just thinking more about that interview that we just did with Tristan Hopper with the National Post about decriminalization, the situation in BC. Like, British Columbians are compassionate people. I think we are. And it's how we got to this point where we are trying out decriminalization in an effort to try and stop the tide of awful overdoses that we have had with this public health emergency for far too many years now. If you had asked someone 10 years ago how you feel about decriminalization, people would have said, no, you're crazy. It's a terrible idea. But this constant huge number of overdoses that we have have made a lot of people realize, listen, we have to try something. Maybe this will work. Will this help people? Yes, let's try it. And that's where I think BC was at last year. And then, you know, the other side of that, the balance of it is how do we find the place where the general public feels comfortable with this and we are still helping people? And then this BC Supreme Court decision last week has brought it all kind of back into the spotlight where people feel frustrated. They think, I'd, I'd like to be able to go to the park and not have to worry about public safety. But you also want to know that you're doing things that are helping people who need that help. Does that mean that they should be able to use any public space to use drugs? Where do we draw the line? Harm reduction advocates that have gone to court to, you know, to get that decision may not understand that they they're sounds like they're doing the 
cause actual harm with the general public when you can't help find that line with the public, you can't find that compromise there, that it may result in backlash. I think it is resulting in backlash where people are saying, well, listen, if that's what this experiment means, then maybe we don't want this experiment anymore. We don't want to try decriminalization. And that is a hard fought issue. Took years for the general public to kind of get on side with it. You had them there. And now decisions like this, arguments like this are kind of making the public backtrack. And the worst thing you want is to see the overdose numbers go back up, right? So where do we find that line? And that is the challenge. That's the challenge the government is facing right now, too. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. And I know we're going to be talking more about this. This is Mornings with Simi. This week might still be okay because, you know, there's still vacation, school vacation. Maybe you haven't gone back to work yet. But next week, once we're in those doldrums of January and nothing to look forward to, I think people feel kind of bogged down, right? How do we overcome that? We're going to talk to our next guest about that. Dr. Adam Mastriani is with us, experimental psychologist and author of the Experimental History Newsletter. Hi, Adam. Hey, how you doing? Good. Thank you so much for doing this this morning. Do you ever feel bogged down? <laughs> yes. I, I sometimes think of my life as, uh, as brief periods of being on dry land uh, before falling into the next bog. Oh, that, that sounds terrible. Why, why do you think <laughs> that is? I, I think there are three. Uh, it's not as bad as it sounds. I always learn something each time. But I think there are three main forces that uh, end up with me back in the bog. I think these are similar for other people. I think one is you have insufficient activation energy that whatever it's going to take to change your life it probably requires a a brief but extraordinary output of effort. And if you can't muster that, you're going to stay stuck. That's one force. The the other is you got a bad escape plan. And I've, I've amassed a bunch of bad escape plans for way, ways out that don't work. And the uh, and the third is, is that you're in a bog of your own making, that this isn't a real situation, except in the, in the sense that you have imagined it and made it real. Um, those are the things that I find most often uh, end, end with me stuck again. Okay, so you, one of your theories then is that we put ourselves in the matrix? A little bit, yeah, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> we did this I mean, to one ourselves. Of the, one of the mind's greatest tricks, uh, and, and this has been a theme in psychology research for <laughs> since there was psychology research, is that there's a difference between perception and reality, but the mind's greatest trick is convincing you that there is no difference between perception and reality. This is, this is true from our visual system on up. The, the things that you literally see are not exactly the things that exist. Your visual system tweaks them to make them more useful to you. And it doesn't stop doing that just with the photons hitting your eyes. This is also true of all the sensations and thoughts and beliefs that your mind constructs. Um, so, uh, so for, for instance, one of these, uh, I think, imaginary bogs that I often find myself in uh, is, is what I call the floor is lava, um, which is, you know, kids always learn how to play this game that you pretend the floor is lava, you can't step on the carpet, you'll get incinerated, right. you have to jump from the armchair onto the sofa, which shows that from a very young age, we are able to pretend that fake problems are real. And we, we actually just perfect this ability as we grow up. Uh, in pretending that, uh, that, that our adult problems, uh, while fake, are in fact real. Um, so I, I play this game with myself, for instance, uh, like, well, I'm not really successful unless I'm more successful than my most successful friend. Like, this is a game I like to play with myself. And by the way, nothing I've done so far counts. It's only what I do <laughs> starting now. Uh, this is the made-up adult version uh, of The Floor is Lava. The, the rules aren't real. They come from nowhere. 
But the thing about games is they're supposed to be fun, and this one is not. Does this work for you, though, like to play these kids? I love the way you referred to it as well. You refer to it as insufficient activation energy. Another word for, I guess, procrastination, which we've kind of been talking about on the show this week. Yeah, I mean, I find that, that assigning goofy names to some of these things helps me realize when I'm doing them again. I think the fastest way or the hard, the, the thing that makes it hardest to get out of the bog is to think that I'm in some entirely new situation. Nothing that I have learned up until now or that anyone else has ever learned can help me get out of this. But if you realize like, oh, this actually belongs to a category. I've seen this category before and I know what to do when I encounter this category. It makes it a lot easier. For, for instance, one of, the, um, one of the, the variants of having insufficient activation energy is a thing I call waiting for jackpot, which is I'm not going to do anything until the perfect option arrives. This is the option oh, that all do dominates that. all other options, yes, on all dimensions. And when I realize, like, hold on, wait a second, I am waiting for an option that has no downside. That doesn't exist. What I actually need to do is pick the best option of the ones that I have and then make the best of it. Uh, this, this whole idea that I'm just going to wait around until my problems spontaneously solve themselves or, uh, or a miracle happens, like it's not going to get me out of this situation. When I realize I'm doing that, it helps me actually find the activation energy necessary to get myself out of that rut. Well, I love the, the names that you give to these things. Like, for instance, what is declining the dragon? So this is the idea that, uh, you know, medieval knights used to wander around hoping to encounter honorable adventures that they could then complete and, you know, earn valor uh, for themselves. Um, uh, and the idea here being that, like, actually overcoming something scary feels really good. Um, but when you are too afraid to do the thing that gets you out of the bog, whether it's you're afraid to tell the truth or you're afraid to, uh, to admit that you love something embarrassing or you're afraid to take a risk, it seems like uh, when you make that choice, you're going to suffer a lot. And that's why you're putting it off. But that's actually entirely the wrong theory. When you actually do the thing, it feels really good. Uh, it feels like slaying a dragon. So like the dragon is scary before you slay it. But once you slay it, you feel pretty proud of yourself. And so when you put off the opportunity to be brave, you are robbing yourself uh, of the pleasure of being courageous. That's, to me, what declining the dragon is. Okay, so do we need to do this, do you think, then, Adam, do we need to come up with these phrases? We need to essentially trick ourselves into, well, feeling better at this time of year. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think if it is a trick so much as a tool that uh, we often begin a new year with uh, what I think of as the try harder fallacy, which is just like, I wasn't trying hard enough last year. That's why I didn't keep my New Year's resolutions and and my life didn't improve. This year, I'll just try harder. And you realize, like, actually, no, you are are exerting maximum effort at all times. If you want your life to be different, it's actually a matter of redirecting that effort. That's an example, I think, of not so much a trick, but a way of categorizing the things that we do that make it easier to recognize the patterns we keep doing and then do something different instead. Um, and it's, it, it seems that we're not very good at doing this because by some surveys anyway, only like 9% of people uh, end the year saying that they kept the resolution that they made at the beginning. I know. So it seems like an area where we, we could use some improvement. <laughs> and then we do it again. I, I, every year, I feel, exactly. it makes us so hopeful, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. And there's actually a, a term in psychology for this, the, the fresh start effect. Um, that, uh, that it's easier to make these kind of decisions. Um, and it does make it easier to hold on to them when you make them at some kind of threshold of life. But the problem with January 1st is that it's only there are 364 other days where you don't have the psychological benefit. Something else has to carry you through on those days. 
Uh, and I think part of what helps doing that is realizing all these forces that push you off course, being able to name them and then do the opposite. Okay, so do you set yourself any resolutions or anything like that at the beginning of the year? Yeah, actually, uh, this year, uh, I, I got married last year. Um, my and my wife's uh, family immigrated from India. They, uh, so they grew up speaking uh, the language called Malayalam, uh, which is um, uh, a language from the south of India. Yes. I'd really like to speak that language. Um, and so I've been starting every day with a little language lesson. Um, realizing that, that like what keeps me going is the pleasure that I have in doing this, the love that I have for my wife and the fact that I want to share that with her rather than this feeling of like, I need to try harder. I need to do this thing that I don't like to do. Try to focus on the things that I actually do like about it. Okay. That's good though. That's a, that's a bit of a mind switch, right? We have to embrace yes. the positive here rather than, but because like people will within a month, I think start to beat themselves up over the things that they didn't do already in 2024. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, the, the cousin of the, the uh, try harder fallacy is the infinite effort illusion. The idea that, you know, in the, in the future, I'll just I just have this reserve of effort that I'll use for things um, and uh, you know, like a strategic effort reserve. Like we're going to open this up and that's going to make me better at doing everything. But there isn't any strategic effort reserve. All your effort is currently accounted for. And so doing something different or doing something additional means not doing something that you're doing right now. So when I do my Malayalam lesson in the morning, it means I'm not spending that time reading articles or whatever it was I was doing lying in bed before I got out of bed. Um, so it, it means recognizing that this is a trade rather than an addition because um, there are only 24 hours in the day. You can't make more and so you can only reallocate them. Uh, this too, I think, is, uh, is a fallacy that we keep falling into. All right, I like the way you look at this. Adam, I'm going to give this more thought. Listen, thanks very much for your time. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to talk to you. Nice to talk to you too. That is Dr. Adam Mastriani, who's an experimental psychologist, author of the Experimental History Newsletter, essentially using different types of word, different language to well, look at our... I guess, New Year's resolutions a little bit differently about the way we approach tactics, uh, the way we approach procrastination, perhaps. He calls it insufficient activation energy, which, yeah. All right, anything that works, right? Whatever works for people. This is Mornings with Simi. Jeffrey Epstein, how oh, that name still evokes repulsion, doesn't it? And, and mystery. How did this man get away with what he was doing for so many years? And who was associating with him? because we know a lot of high-profile people were. Well, we may soon find out more about that, actually, with the upcoming release of court documents from a civil case filed by one of Epstein's victims. So what might we learn? Well, joining us now is Jacob Shamsian, who's a crime and courts correspondent for Business Insider. Jacob, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Jacob, how significant is this? So I do think it's significant in, in the sense that it's expected to be the last uh, chapter in a long-running lawsuit. So, as you said, Virginia Jeffrey, who's one of Jeffrey Epstein's victims, filed this lawsuit against uh, Gillen Maxwell, who's one of Jeffrey Epstein's um, partners and sex trafficking uh, associates, who uh, way back in 2015. And a lot of the documents in this case have been under seal, and this is expected to be the, the last and biggest round of unsealing where we're going to see a, quite a bit more information about what happened there. And what are some of the things that we think are in these documents? So uh, in, in one sense, I do think it's been a little bit overblown. Uh, I think a lot of people are expecting some like client list or big name of, of associates. Uh, what we are going to see are a lot of documents that have come up in the case 
that have been sealed in one way or another uh, because they include the name, uh, the name of someone who had some kind of privacy right. Now, a lot of people kind of make this assumption that these are all going to be his Jeffrey Epstein associates, some kind of like people who do crimes with him. But in fact, a lot of these people are his victims whose names are now going to be uh, made public because, you know, maybe in the past few years, they themselves have spoken out. They've, you know, made their own names public and the judge no longer sees a reason to keep their names private in these court documents or just, you know, some kind of like house member of his household um, or just kind of people whose name incidentally came up uh, and some friends. We, we know, for example, that Bill Clinton, who was friends with Epstein in the 1990s, is one of these uh, uh, John Doe's, so to speak, whose, whose name will be unsealed. Right. So what are some of the other names that we think might be in there? It's hard to tell. Um, like I said, a lot of them are going to be his victims. Other powerful people are, are a little harder to uh, to tease out based on what we know so far, because this is this stuff is still under seal. Um, I do think Alan Dershowitz is going to be one, although he, to be fair, has been one of the people who's been who've been who've been trying to get these documents unsealed for a long time because it he says that they kind of like prove his innocence and his own associations with Jeffrey Epstein. Um, what and, about yeah. what, like what about those privacy issues that you talked about there? So, if the privacy issues were the reason why these documents got sealed, what happens to those privacy issues now? Yeah, so so this lawsuit came way back in 2015, um, and it was settled. Uh, Glenn Maxwell paid a settlement to Virginia Jeffrey, kind of like settling these uh, these accusations against her uh, in the civil case. She was later in 2021 convicted of sex trafficking. Uh, girls to Jeffrey Epstein in a trial in New York, which which I covered. Um, so in the intervening years, a lot of these victims have uh, who, who did have privacy issues have spoken publicly. Um, otherwise, the judge overseeing the civil trial has just said, you know what, like there isn't necessarily anything that's um, lurid in these documents, and so the the right for the public to know what's in them outweighs any privacy interests they already had. And the reason this is taking so long is because this judge is, is going through every single doe, which has, you know, been something in the, in the range of around 200 and saying, well, let's weigh the public's interests, uh, the, the rights to know what's in these court documents, which by nature are public because they're filed in a public court um, versus whatever privacy interests these people may have. And we're going to weigh them and decide, you know, what, what should be public and what isn't. And so this is this is the judge saying, for this round of 172 people, by my count, uh, you know, we're, the, the public's interest outweighs any privacy interest, and we're going to make them public now. Okay, so when will that happen? We are, so the, this deadline uh, for anyone to object to that was a couple days ago, and so now it's a bit of a logistical issue for the lawyers to just put them in the public docket. It could uh, come as soon as today. Um, it could take another couple days. Um, the last I heard, we are expecting it today. But, uh, yeah, I, obviously it hasn't happened yet, so I don't want to predict the future. Why do you think, Jacob, that we are so fascinated by this story? So, you know, Jeffrey Epstein was someone who did some horrible, horrible, horrible things. He raped um, more than 150 girls from, from uh, I think, is a, is, a, is, a, is a real number. Um, and he was friends with really powerful people. He ran in elite circles. He, uh, you know, consorted with billionaires. He somehow became extraordinarily wealthy himself in ways that are still, to this day, unclear. Um, and, you know, I think he's a great example of someone who 
kind of like got away with it. He's, he's this person who, who, uh, who, who did something, who did horrible, horrible things. And he was treated in respect, he was treated as respectable by a lot of people who the public considers respectable. And, um, and, and it's, it's fascinating for all these reasons. And it's, and it's still a puzzle to be, to be untangled uh, to this day for all, for all those reasons. And it's also because we love a mystery, right? And there does seem to be so many mysteries, uh, things that we don't know about this case, like these names. Yeah, you know, I've been reporting on on the legal matters that, uh, surrounding Jeffrey Epstein for the past few years, and it does seem like you know you just dig a little bit somewhere, and there are all these like weird, weird, shady characters and people and situations that pop up around him uh, that don't really make any sense on the surface, and you start digging, and it just seems to make even less sense. So I, I do think there he's he's a big mystery. It's hard to understand. Uh, how he existed in this world, and uh, when you when you even try to take it apart, it makes even less sense the more you look at it. It's so true, though, right? It's it's still to this day. You wonder how how did this happen? It almost it, well, not almost. It was it was in plain sight in front of everybody. It was yeah, it was in plain sight. It was a real failure of law enforcement. It, it's an example of someone who is wealthy and could hire powerful lawyers, and who had uh, you know powerful friends who were powerful lawyers, uh, like Alan Dershowitz could could you know make pressure. Uh, authorities to to make things go away, you know, as, as it was back in 2007 when he got a very light plea deal after um, law enforcement already at that point had evidence that he had abused dozens of of, of girls and, and underage uh, under underage women, um, and and it's it's extraordinary. It's, it's, I think it's it's really extraordinary, and it's it's a it's 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 a travesty, and I think an example of how the justice system has failed people um, in a lot of ways. Do you think the system has changed as a result of this? Yeah, so like I said, I covered uh, Gillian Maxwell's trial. This mm-hmm. is after Jeffrey Epstein died in prison. And it was really, really powerful to see these victims uh, taking the witness stands and testifying about this horrible, horrible, horrible abuse that they suffered uh, years earlier. And, and, you know, it must have been traumatic for them to, to relive it in front, of, in, front of, um, in front of the jurors and in front of, in front of me, in front of uh, journalists who were sitting and watching and it, it did seem there where you know it, it, it's it, it does it did, did feel a little too little too late in the sense that jeffrey epstein you know was gone but the government did put enormous resources into going after gillen maxwell um uh they, they did put she's she serving a 20-year prison sentence now um and and you know there are there are a whole class of lawyers who have popped up who have, who have thought to get civil uh you know damages for the for the abuse they suffered, the, his estate has paid out over a hundred million dollars to to victims. Uh, now, uh, recently, there were settlements with J.P. Morgan and, and Deutsche Bank, who um, you know were alleged to have ignored red flags with his monetary transactions that made this sex trafficking operation happen. So, I, you know, I do think that this whole case has really raised awareness and have uh, you know raised certain levels of punishments. But, it, like I said, there's still a lot that we just don't know. That is so true. Jacob, thank you so much for your time on that. Thanks for having me. That's Jacob Shamsian, who's a crime and courts correspondent for Business Insider, talking about the latest details in this, the twists and turns of the Jeffrey Epstein saga. Now, there were originally supposed to be documents that were released today, as Jacob mentioned. It sounds, though, like that is being put off potentially till January the 22nd. Uh, So we will see what happens with that. But it is very clear that the fascination with this case continues.